0: New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is generously supported by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre, building on the expertise of over 270 specialists at the University of Sydney to support research, education and partnerships in Southeast Asia. For details about upcoming events and opportunities, visit sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney hyphen southeast hyphen Asia hyphen centre spelled R-E.
1: Hey, like I, see you today.
0: Burmese Buddhist monks have been in the news quite a lot in recent times, not as the peaceful practitioners of a self abnegating religious tradition, but more often than not as the propagators of what is oftentimes portrayed as a rather rancid Buddhist nationalism. If you've followed the news reports but are not deeply familiar with moral and intellectual traditions of Buddhism and politics in Burma or Myanmar, you might be a bit perplexed at the leading political role of monks there and wondering as to how Buddhists reconcile political action with. With religious doctrine. If so, then keep listening. As today on New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, we're lucky to be joined by Matthew J. Walton, author of Buddhism, Politics and Political Thought in Myanmar, just out with Cambridge University Press. Its jacket informs us that it is the first book to provide a broad overview of the ways in which Buddhist ideas have influenced political thinking and politics in Myanmar. This is certainly a book that that has been widely anticipated by the Myanmar studies community and I, for one, couldn't wait to get a copy and to get its author onto the show. Matthew Walton is the Aung San Suu Kyi Senior Research Fellow in Modern Burmese Studies at St. Anthony's College, University of Oxford, and he'll be speaking with me, Nick Cheesman, a member at the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton and host of the channel. Matt, it's a pleasure to have you on the show.
1: Thanks so much, Nick. It's great to be here.
0: Why did you write Buddhism, Politics, and Political Thought in Myanmar?
1: Yeah, well, this, so this book was, uh, I guess, a long time coming. Um, my, my original background is uh, as a musician and as a composer. Um, and uh, as I was f- 15 or 20 years ago making the transition from uh, music into another area of study, um, I was kind of trying to figure out what that area of study might be. And like so many of us, uh, did the requisite, um, backpacking trip through Southeast Asia. So this was 2002, I think. Um, and the first place that I went along with a friend of mine, uh, was Myanmar. And we, we sort of, we wanted to kind of start out this trip to kind of get us centered in a way. Um, and not really knowing what we were doing, we signed up for a month long meditation retreat at a, at a monastery, uh, Jazwa which is sort of outside of Sagang which itself is outside of Mandelet. Um And so we, uh, had, of course, were interested in Buddhism, a little bit interested in meditation, but, like I said, really didn't know what we were getting into. Um, and we went for this retreat, and this was a sort of full-on Vipassana or insight meditation retreat. And it was kind of, I hesitate to use the word fusion, um, but it was run by a Burmese monk um, who, uh, who had taught a lot of Westerners and then a number of Westerners who had been monks and nuns in Myanmar for for many years. Um, and so this was, you know, six, 16 hours a day or so of, of meditation, um, vow of silence, all those sorts of things. And I think it was good that we didn't actually know what we were uh, getting into because I probably would have run away scared if I did. But uh, for me, it was really a kind of initially a sort of personal spiritual transformation and and i kind of described it and others described it to me as a sort of coming home right uh, so i was raised lutheran but at that point was kind of looking for something else and and really um you know felt like like burmese buddhist traditions and vipassana meditation really spoke to me uh so that got the the kind of personal spiritual interest uh, and then the intellectual kind of academic interest came right at the end of this month-long retreat and so one of the Westerners who was teaching us, you know, had been a monk in, in Myanmar and in Burma in the 80s and, and early 90s, um, and was asked in the early 90s by Mahasi Sayadaw, famous, um, you know, teaching monk and meditating monk, uh, to talk to Don Sansuchi about Vipassana meditation and about Buddhism. And I, as far as I learned the story, the Mahasi Sayadaw sort of thought that she might have a benefit having you know having grown up outside of the uh, outside of myanmar and grown up in the west might benefit from hearing it from you know from an american who had studied in myanmar and so you know this this late 80s early 90s was really the time for don Sansuchi when when she was in this period of great intellectual ferment uh you know, thinking about buddhism and human rights and democracy and all these kinds of things uh and so he talked to us after the, this this american um who was one of the leaders of the retreat, talked to us about their conversations after the retreat was over. And for me, that was really just kind of the initial hook to really want to understand more how, I mean, for lack of a better way of saying this, how does Buddhism influence the ways in which people engage with politics, the ways in which people understand what politics is, and of course, practice politics, too. So that just that interest grew and grew as we traveled across mainland Southeast Asia. And I just kept seeing in all these different countries, people's individual Buddhist practices and wondering, well, how does this kind of fit with the politics? And so having that combined sort of personal, spiritual and academic intellectual interest was enough to start me on a path to want to study this at university, I was really fortunate to start out at the University of Washington to do my PhD, uh, where I could study with Dothan Than Win, one of the best uh, Burmese teachers around, uh, and so could really, you know, learn learn the language that would allow me to sit down and talk with monks and, you know, read the books that I needed to read. Uh, and, and that really started it, to kind of ask these, these questions about what kind of lens— you know, does or lenses do, do, does Buddhism provide for Burmese Buddhists to think about and understand and engage with
0: politics? Great. So you've given us the questions, and uh, the next question is, how do you answer them in the book? Yes.
1: <laughs> well, so I mean, as you well know, there's it's it's been a challenge to do research in Myanmar, um, particularly until until recent years, um, and you know it's it's. Kind of strange. I, I consider myself a political theorist, and that that's been the focus of my work. I consider this work to be a a, a book of comparative political thought or non Western political thought. Um, but it's also kind of rare for political theorists to do field work and to do things other than kind of textual engagement. Um, you know, so we know starting out that. That within Buddhism and within the, within the Theravada tradition in particular, there aren't all that many kind of explicitly political texts, uh, you know, which is certainly different from the Western tradition, certainly different from the Confucian tradition, other Chinese traditions, uh, from Islamic political thought. You know, so you don't have that many texts. And then you've got the situation in Myanmar where you've had a repressive government um, for decades and decades. And and so there aren't that many texts available to begin with, people just haven't been allowed to talk about politics and to write about politics. Um, you know, so so studying this then meant certainly trying to get at the written sources that are available um, and get a sense of of you know how how people have written about this in ways that might be comparable to what we see in Western political thought. You know, treatises from people like Hobbes, Plato, Socrates, um, but then also trying to get a sense of how this get how this plays out in people's everyday lives and and you know one of the big ways of getting at that was talking to monks, listening to monks' sermons, seeing the ways in which monks sort of present this this sort of moral um what i call a moral universe through their sermons through their conversations with people you know the advice that they dispense on a regular basis is often advice for engaging with the social world and engaging with the political world. So, you know, so it's, it's textual, um, but it's also based on interviews that I've done and on, on all of examining all of these other non-written texts as well.
0: You just mentioned moral universe. So I'd like you to discuss that term in some more length and depth because it's uh, significant to the argument that you present throughout the work.
1: Yeah, it certainly is. Um, So a lot of people, when they talk about um, Buddhism and Buddhism and politics, talk about the Buddhist cosmology. Um, you know, and 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 for many hundreds of years, if not longer, this has included uh, not just a, an idea of the way that the world works and the way the universe works, um, but but a, a kind of broader view of different realms and different kinds of deities and different kinds of beings and, and the relationships between them all. Um, and that's an important part of, of a kind of Buddhist frame of reference. Um, but but actually in in the over the course of my reading, what I what I started to I started to come to the conclusion that you know the way that we use cosmology includes a lot of things that might have been much more meaningful for people in a kind of pre-colonial or early colonial era, but not as much in the contemporary era, and certainly not as critical for kind of political uh, understandings. And so, I started to think about well, what what are the kind of consistent components that um, you know that, that that Buddhists have retained from the pre-colonial era through the colonial. Into the kind of post-independence and current eras, you know, what what are the the, the parts that they've maintained? And, and really, what what I the, the conclusion that I came to from from my work is that yes, people might believe in different realms of existence; they might think about these different deities. But when we try to talk about a kind of dominant tradition of political thought in Burma, Myanmar over the last hundred, hundred and fifty years, it's been. Um, a, a, an idea that the universe is governed by particular moral laws um, and and that we need to kind of understand those laws and act in accordance with them um, and and this doesn't necessarily need to include these ideas of different beings or gods or realms of existence or anything like that it's more about learning these basic laws of of karma um, and and the the kind of relationship between an individuals' actions and the results, right? And that, in in and of itself, is a kind of moral law. Um, and, and when 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 Buddhists use the word moral in this sense, um, we kind of gloss it with these terms that mean good and bad or good and evil. Um, but really, what it's what it's saying, it's I mean, those are absolute uh, terms that don't really apply in the Buddhist universe. What we're saying more is that the quality of your action will produce a result that has a similar quality. And that's a kind of impersonal, never-changing law of the universe in, in the Buddhist teachings. And so that's the kind of moral component that we have here in this universe.
0: Um, you say that uh, this moral universe has remained largely consistent from the pre-colonial era to contemporary Myanmar. And I'd like to get more of a sense as to how you make that argument and going back to your references earlier to source materials, uh, what kinds of uh, records you drew upon, what kind of uh, interviews you had to um, offer that observation.
1: Yeah. <clears throat> so, I mean, so in terms of the, the kind of text that I'm using, um, I'm going back as far as kind of the, the sort of mid to late 19th century um, and and using some of the some of the writings of, of a pretty remarkable uh, sort of scholar royal advisor a guy named U Pohlein, um who wrote the Rajadama uh, Rajadama Thingahajam which is a sort of manual advice of advice for for Thibault, the last Burmese king um, he also is famous for writing a number of other books as well kind of looking at some of the concepts that he uses um, and 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 then moving forward into um, into the 20th century, uh, early sort of anti-colonial writings, certainly the, the preaching of different monks in the first decades of the, of the 20th century, that would eventually kind of become more explicitly nationalist uh, um, sort of nationalist discourse, uh, merging these ideas about uh, individuals' moral conduct and its effects on political leadership, its effects on the conditions of the country, the conditions of the people. These were themes that were consistent from somebody like Upovlan near the end of the of the nineteenth century through the early decades of anti colonial um agitation, you know, where where you also had um alongside of, of that a a kind of modernist demystified semi kind of scientific interpretation of buddhism and and I, I i hesitate to call that a reinterpretation because i think for some people that i that idea that that um you know that buddhism had these moral truths that were not necessarily connected to the other parts of the cosmology i think that was really there for um you know for for a lot of these people including people like upo but then we started to see it uh, we We saw it continue in the 1930s nineteen forties nineteen fifties with political leaders right and and one of the things that I try to pull out uh, of the book is is to challenge this sort of received wisdom that often comes from kind of political studies of of Burma and then in the thirties forties and fifties that that has this kind of um, binary distinction between uh Somebody like General Aung San, the kind of independence hero, and then somebody like Unu, who was the first prime minister of the country after Aung San was assassinated. And and the way that, that studies always presented these two was that Aung San was the kind of secular leader who thought that Buddhism and politics should be separated. And Unu was this, you know, sort of religious leader who kind of wanted to be a monk and was trying to do this religious revival and, and really just got Uh, had the bad luck to be forced into politics Um, and certainly Unu wanted a kind of more explicitly I mean he he wanted a more explicit role for religion in politics at times Um, I mean he was pushing for uh, for, he organized the Sixth Buddhist Council Um, he pushed for the uh, amendment to make Buddhism the state religion And, and certainly Aung San uh, expressed a very different view where he thought that the, that the state should be a secular state. Having said that, though, if you read the things that both of these men wrote, they're using a lot of the same concepts. Um, they're using a lot of the same ideas to think about and interpret politics, right? To think about, um, you know, why certain things happen and, and to give advice and to say, well, this is how we should act politically. This is how we should organize our polity and and. That way of thinking is is deeply rooted in these moral laws um that i was talking about before about um about karma um and about uh, particular notions of, of truth and particular notions of actions and so you know so you can go from these uh longer more detailed treatises that are kind of treatises of political thought from people like Upohan. you can look at the uh the sermons um of monks in the 1910s and 1920s. You can look at the, the writings of the socialists, early leaders in the 40s and 50s, and all of them are expressing these ideas about how people should be acting and about how it's the, it's the moral quality of the actions of political leadership and of the political community as a whole that sets the, the sort of course for the polity. And this to me was the kind of consistent message uh, throughout all of these decades when so much else was changing um, in the country in terms of, of uh, you know, its context of the world, its relationship to, to Great Britain, its independence, everything like that. Um, and it was consistent throughout different kinds of ideologies as well. And I think that's one of the striking things is that, you know, socialists and, uh, and communists and rightists and eventually kind of Democrats and others – would all have these kind of ideas about moral action, um, so interpreted through this Buddhist lens, and that's what they use to interpret and enact their different ideologies.
0: It it seems to me that the point you're making here goes to uh, the interest you express earlier in the work uh, using a term from Peter Jackson, the interpretive plasticity of Burmese Buddhist concepts or conceptions of politics. you want to say something about that term and what it means for you in your work on Myanmar?
1: Yeah, I mean you know, I, I I shamelessly sort of steal Peter Jackson's term whenever I can. I think it was it's just such a um such a perfect description of what's happening. And I think um, you know, as scholars we need to be really careful uh when we're studying any of these traditions, whether it's Buddhism in Myanmar, whether it's leftism or Marxism or any of these things, to to ensure that we're not presenting them as unitary and unified ideas, um, you know, and so so I'm I'm trying to describe, you know, what I what I call a moral universe uh, of Burmese Buddhism because I feel like there there are potentially others, right? But this these sets of moral like this set of moral ideas that I call them this moral universe is the one that I say has anchored the tradition of political thinking in the country. Um, but even so. It's it's a set of ideas that have been interpreted very differently. Right. Um, I think one and 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 what we need to understand is that, that people can have these sort of um, these basic moral beliefs, but then um, then deploy them in different ways in response to political conditions in response to their own beliefs and. Um, And that there can still be a kind of consistency there, um, but that we've seen Buddhism and Buddhist ideas, uh, sort of deployed in defense of a wide range of ideologies. And I think one of the, one of the most, I I think one of the, one of the most telling examples of this is, is what I identify as a kind of, um, dualistic view of human nature that, that I, I think is pretty consistent within, uh, Theravada Buddhism at least. And so this is on the one hand, um, humans are seen as capable of enlightenment, right capable of moral perfection. If that wasn't the case, you know there would have been nothing for the Buddha to teach. Um, and because we're capable of enlightenment, because we're capable of that sort of self-perfection, um, the the kind of political uh, interpretation of of that would be something that would uh, would promote free human action, right? to learn, make mistakes, grow, grow sort of morally, intellectually. And I, I, I don't necessarily, I think I describe it in, in the book more like that's kind of a, a, a pro-democratic or, or um, you know leaning more towards the democratic side. And I've started to think differently about that. Um, thinking about it more in terms of people's participation in politics, opportunities for people to participate in politics. But that's one side of human nature that comes from Theravada Buddhism, to say people are capable of moral Uh, perfection of moral development, so therefore we should design a political system that lets them uh, do that. The other side um, is that that, uh, in in Burmese, people use this term Putuzin, um, and in in Pali, it's Putujana. Uh, So the Putuzin is actually a kind of Hobbesian figure, not good, not evil, but ignorant and self-centered. All right self-centered because of that ignorance uh, specifically in in the in the buddhist sense this person is ignorant of buddhist truths um of of impermanence and no self and suffering and because we all act in ignorance of those buddhist truths we act in self-centered ways um and we act in ways that hurt ourselves and others right so the putus in Is always kind of doing the wrong thing, or always kind of prone to do the wrong thing, and and that's a that's a sort of fundamental aspect of human existence. That until we reach enlightenment, we are all putus in to some degree or another. Now, that idea of human nature lends itself to a very different sort of political system. Lends itself to uh, you know to a system where. That they would argue that people need to be guided, people need to be led, people need to be led away from their base instincts, uh, need to be kept from doing bad things to themselves and others. That's uh, maybe a slightly more authoritarian system, certainly a less participatory system. Um, you know, So lots of Burmese Buddhists and, and lots of monks and others have expressed these ideas that we've heard in other countries in Southeast Asia, which is to say, and frankly, we've heard in other countries around the world, not Buddhist countries, to say if if people by nature are fundamentally self-interested, self-serving, ignorant, prone to doing all these bad things, why in the world would we want a whole nation of millions of them to be participating in ruling themselves? Why would we not want, you know, a, a morally better or, or um, you know, closer to moral perfection, somebody to, to rule them? So this tension is a fundamental tension that exists, this uh, dualistic idea of human nature as potentially uh, capable of self-perfection, but also fundamentally ignorant and usually more self-interested um, and prone to harming ourselves and others. This is a fundamental tension that kind of shapes the ways in which Burmese Buddhists engage in politics. And so this is, bring this just back around to interpretive plasticity, you can choose to emphasize one aspect of that or another. Uh, you can ask, emphasize uh, them at different times and in different t- different sorts of uh, contexts. And so you've got a consistency in terms of some of these basic ideas, but you can then deploy them in very different ways, very different ideologies.
0: Yep what uh, really interested me in your answer there is how you you know, pointed to your own changed uh, thinking on this uh, notion of the dualistic conception of human nature and its implications for politics because i felt in some ways there's a a kind of a tension in the book or even a kind of an ambivalence on your part as, as to which way to move in how you position your own thinking about this, um, the implications of this dualistic conception for political practice. And one of the ways that it emerges, uh, at least in my reading, at, at a couple of points in the work quite strongly is on this question of uh, what it means to talk about political participation in Myanmar, how there's a very different conceptualization of political Participation from what we might encounter, say, in an orthodox, liberal, democratic, um, Eurocentric uh, political theory. So perhaps you could speak um, to that aspect of the work, and um, and I think that's going to bring us up to uh, a time that we'll take a short break and then turn to some other topics.
1: Yeah. So it's um, I I mean it's it's interesting that you that you. Uh, point out that ambivalence I think it's there I, I mean I think the ambivalence that I would identify throughout this tradition or these traditions of Burmese Buddhist political thought is I think reflected in the book as uh, as well and, and certainly reflected in my own positioning um, and one of the challenges of doing this initially as a dissertation and, and then turning it into the book was <clears throat> um, I I I present what I'm doing in the book as interpretive political theory meaning um you know describing and explaining another tradition of of political thought right so this is kind of how my interpretation of how Burmese Buddhists have thought about politics that's very different from what many political theorists do uh you know kind of with their political theorist hat on themselves to to sort of think through politics with these ideas um and I, and I I like to do both and I, um, find myself sort of positioned with a foot in the Western tradition and also with a foot in, in the Burmese tradition. Um, really, you know, that it's not a tradition I grew up in, but it's something that resonates with me. These ideas that I talk about that I've studied other people, other people's thoughts on, um, you know, I also like to think with them when thinking about politics, but it's a very dangerous thing to, to do to kind of combine these two types of thinking. Um, and I, I uh, uh, a, a project years in the future down the down the line, is to think through a kind of um, a vipassana perspective on politics. So, vipassana meditation is this sort of insight meditation where we come to have an experiential understanding of these Buddhist moral truths, and um, we think about vipassana as uh, detached from uh, from sort of. Action and intentional action, but but in fact if we think about these fundamental moral truths as characterizing existence Well, then we can actually learn a lot about politics and about how we should organize politics if this is what existence is like Um, So so I think about this a lot I kind of want to do this longer-term project drawing from different Theravada teachings on on Vipassana, but uh, What I found is that my early iterations of this in, uh, in the context of writing about Burmese Buddhist ideas on this, were sort of uncomfortably positioned next to them, right? It almost seemed as if I was spending five chapters talking about how Burmese Buddhists were thinking about this and then presenting my own ideas as, as if to say, well, they got it wrong for the last 150 years. Here's how we ought to interpret it. Um, I think that's a danger that, that comparative political theorists face um, a lot. And so that ambivalence is is there in my own thinking as well and, and, and trying to kind of like, Be an interpretive voice and obviously, you know, um, uh, stepping into that and inserting myself and my own views there, um, but also trying to, as much as possible, let these, um, let these groups speak for themselves. But what that comes around to then is these questions on political participation. And you've got this long-standing um, view among Buddhists and among non-Buddhists that Buddhism is or ought to be apolitical. Right, monks ought to be apolitical. That you know the ideal Buddhist position is one of detachment. Um, and and you know there's an argument for that. If you're if you're uh, actually the um, <clears throat> the monk that I learned from originally during this retreat gave this great allegory uh, to me in one of my sessions with him. Uh, he said, "Look, there's if you want to go from here to Mandalay." the quickest way is to just get on the road and go now along the way there are going to be a lot of different possibilities to stop and some of them will be good you could stop and help somebody fix their tire uh you might need to stop for food um you might need to, you might want to stop and go to a bar in which case that might not be a good decision uh you know but you, you do all these things and and have you know, all these distractions along the way or stops along the way, um, but the quickest way to get to Mandalay is to just go straight there. And, and you know, the analogy here is to enlightenment. The quickest way is just straight towards enlightenment. Um, but nobody's really going to do that. And along the way, we have lots along, along our own spiritual path, we have lots of different um, distractions or engagements and really important things acting in the world. So the question then becomes how do we take These moral truths that are oriented towards enlightenment and utilize them in acting correctly or acting well in the world. And I think Burmese Buddhists do so much of this, that uh, so much of this acting in the world that they often don't consider political. Um, or, or now some of that is because for the last 60 years, they haven't been allowed to describe this stuff as political, uh, because they were under a repressive military government. But some of it is also because they have particular understandings of politics, of politics as electoral politics or as, you know, kind of capital P high level, uh, politics. And, um, this was true in the 1950s. People like John Badgley did their research and looked at, you know, what we would call village politics, um, between people and, and said, you know aren't you guys doing politics here when, when you you know sit down and talk about what you know building a road or deciding who to who to make the village head They said no 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 that's not politics that's something that they do far away we're doing these sort of traditional practices and I think you know it's really important to kind of navigate this space where um, where we can have an understanding of what people are doing as politics in a way that you or I might recognize it as politics but also really understanding how they understand their actions right and and that's really where we get a lot of these um kind of innovative political practices forms of political engagement that um that either the practitioners might not consider political but we see as having political effects or activities that they might consider would have political effects things like meditating when you're in jail or just having a kind of meditative practice as well um or, or, improving your own moral practice in order to have effects on the broader political situation. I mean, that's, that's a really innovative understanding of politics and of political engagement as well. So this, so there's a chapter in the book that really tries to piece out a lot of these things, both sort of monastic participation in politics and then also look particularly at, um, this, this, uh, category called parahita or kind of like volunteer social work, um, as a form of Uh, political practice
0: in Myanmar today. Uh, Matt, we're halfway through our discussion, so let's take a break here momentarily. And when we return, I'd like to pick up on the point you've just been making um, on the relationship between uh, social welfare and uh, action in everyday life and national politics. And then we'll also speak briefly about uh, the conceptions of order, and freedom, or liberation, and also democracy in the Burmese setting. Welcome back to the April 2017 episode of New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a channel of the New Books Network, where I'm talking with Matthew Walton about Buddhism, politics, and political thought in Myanmar, published in 2017 by Cambridge University Press. This is a relatively short academic work, but there's a tremendous amount in it that we're just having to pass over in order to get to some stuff that I think is really important for us to speak about in this episode. So chapters that listeners are going to need to consult for themselves include chapter one, which is a wonderful political and intellectual history of Burmese Buddhism, and chapter two, which sets out the doctrinal building blocks of the moral universe, although um, Matthew I hope you'll provide us with any of those blocks that we need for the purposes of the discussion that follows. And I'd like to pick up where we left off before the break, uh, really with, I think what you're getting at is that the distinction between uh, some notion of the political in Burmese Buddhist thought as against politics in the sense of uh, institutional, national level politics. So if you could uh, clarify that distinction and perhaps listeners would also be interested to hear about it in relation to the role of monks in politics.
1: Certainly well and and so maybe we we can actually sort of jump back into this with one of those concepts or sets of concepts from uh, from the building blocks chapter and and this is one where so the Burmese words uh, or ideas are locky and lokotara um, the The Pali words are Lokia and lokutara, but so Loki is kind of the material world right it's the world of existence it's the world of sensory perception it's the world we all live in that we all act in it's also the world of politics economics, social interactions, all those kinds of things now uh is often described by um by, by people as the supra mundane world, which I don't really think is a it's kind of helpful for for our understanding i uh, actually what Lakotura really refers to is a kind of different form of perception. So, you know, you would still be living in the material world, but you would be experiencing it, uh, not through the eyes of the ignorant, um, sort of worldling, uh, but through, but with an experiential understanding of the Buddhist truths of impermanence, no self and suffering or dissatisfactoriness. And now, now, why this is important is um again in, in this realm of interpretive plasticity, uh, some people in Burmese uh sort of Buddhist political thought have interpreted these in very strict ways to say, Look, you know, Buddhist teachings are for Lakotara, they're for you know enlightenment, they're for reaching um uh, reaching nirvana, uh they have nothing to do with the worldly life they have nothing to do with politics or anything like that and we should keep them both very separate um while others have said as i was kind of alluding to before you know if these truths are truths of existence then actually it turns out that we should be able to kind of apply them in some ways in our daily lives and our political lives and and this is really what um you know, this, this is a kind of another fundamental tension that kind of structures Burmese political thinking is about how we ought to use certain Buddhist teachings and beliefs in our everyday lives and in our everyday practices. You know, so if we think about, um, you know, if, if, if we think about these sort of social welfare uh, prihata, uh, uh, um, uh, practices, um, then... These are obviously things that are sort of oriented towards building a good Buddhist community. You know, for some people, they are um, just building up sort of merit. But for other people, they are their donations of, of material goods or donations of time or work or effort. Um that are themselves kind of moral practices right and they're, they're maybe moral practices on some kind of small level um but they're also for some people moral practices that are really building up towards that lakotara or that kind of ultimate um perspective and and they're ways of influencing the world um, that uh that aren't necessarily about voting that aren't necessarily about running for office or signing a petition um, but they're tapping into this kind of moral energy so i think we can segue into the monks by looking at um you know the famous saffron revolution of, of 2007 and this is actually the kind of vignette that i start the book with um certainly when the monks were marching in 2007 uh, it, it was a clear political statement in some ways. I mean, some of them were chanting political slogans, obviously. Um, but the one big thing that they were doing uh, collectively—thousands and thousands of monks, whenever they marched—were chanting the Metta Sutta, chanting a, 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 a sort of Buddhist teaching of, of loving kindness. Um, and it has when you chant the Metta Sutta, it has uh, protective qualities, um, and it's 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 about protection from from enemies and from harm and all these things. But it's also just a general expression of non discriminating loving kindness uh, for for everybody and everything for all living things. And so, you know, the monks were doing this very intentionally and very much with a with a purpose, right? So it didn't have to be a political act. In the way that we might understand a demonstration, uh, you know, political demonstration in in the West. And indeed, for many of those monks, it was not, right? They were insistent that they were not doing that. What they were doing was something that was well within the vocational boundaries of a monk, um, to be protecting the religion, to be protecting the Buddhist community, the community of believers, to be, um, but also to be Having a positive influence on the mindset of the military rulers at the time right and so by chanting meta by chanting this loving kindness they believed that they could have a tangible effect on on the rulers on the people who were committing violence against people um, and who eventually committed violence against those monks as well now I mean we we might look at that from a very instrumental perspective and say well they didn't really succeed at that because the you know the saffron revolution was not successful in um you know in changing that government or overthrowing that government in fact it was a pretty tiny blip um you know overall on, on Myanmar's politics and i i frankly don't believe that it had that much of an effect on the transition because the trans- transition was already underway for at least five or six years before that um the, the referendum that was scheduled for the next year was already scheduled everything like that but but w- the game that these monks were playing if we can call it that was was a much longer game it was a game about sort of fundamentally changing the playing field the moral playing field of people's attitudes um and and that's the kind of uh participation that we need to recognize takes place in a buddhist context
0: this sounds uh, – it, it really resonates with some of the work that uh, Gustav Hauptmann did on, um, on moral practice as a kind of participation. And you mentioned his work early on in the book as well. Are you drawing from him specifically when you're thinking along these lines? Um, would you like to comment on the relationship between his work and yours?
1: Certainly. I mean Gustav was was you know the, the pioneer and, and I'm indebted to him as, as so many of us um, – are and I think you know there are very few people that have done work on Buddhism and politics. Period. But Buddhism and politics in in Myanmar. Um, so you've got Sar Yams, who did a book uh, uh, kind of on politics in in the 1950s, and and his real purpose was to try to um, resurrect U as an actor. Um, I mean, he, he a, a lot of the, the a lot of the political scientists who were studying Myanmar or Burma uh, in the 1950s. Um, you know, had this sort of instrumentalist approach. You know, they, they said, uh, if, if, uh, if Aung San was talking about Buddhism, then, um, you know, he didn't really believe all of this stuff, but he was talking about it because that was going to convince, uh, all the, the masses, the kind of uneducated masses. And they thought that Unu was really just, um, you know, uh, a, a, a pretty naive politician, um, but a devout, uh, Buddhist. And, and I think, you know, Sarkisians was really one of the first to kind of take UNU's political thinking seriously, to believe that it was situated within a tradition, a broader tradition, that, that there was kind of um, not just ideology behind it, but there was a kind of coherent uh, sort of set of moral ideas behind that. So certainly building on him. And then Gustav really um, kind of reinvigorated uh, that, that that area of study, Um in the 90s and into the 2000s, where he was studying uh, what he saw as a kind of moral conflict happening between the NLD, the the Democratic opposition party, and the military in um, the late 1980s and into the 1990s. Uh, and, and, and Gustav was, was really trying to delve into the concepts, um, trying to understand the ways in which... Uh, um, you know, the ways in which these political actors, especially people from the NLD, were understanding um, their own political actions, things like meditation while in prison, mm-hmm. to understand that that could have a, a, a sort of tangible effect. And I think, you know, one of the challenges that we all face uh, when when dealing with a, a sort of political landscape, a religious landscape that's as diverse as Myanmar is, is that um you know, there are a lot of different interpretations of this. And so I think the, um, you know, the, the kind of framing that Gustav did in, uh, in terms of understanding the 1990s as this sort of NLD, Vipassana focused side versus, um, a, uh, sort of military Samatha or concentration and power meditation side might've been true, as, uh, as, as the kind of binary moral battle at that moment, um, and I, I I think it's it's something that's very different now, um, you know, which is what I sort of get into um, in the democracy chapter as well. But um, but in terms of really blazing the trail for taking Burmese ideas seriously, um, you know, trying to understand them on their own terms. Um, And, you know, and, and learning the language and everything to try to, to try to do it, looking at different sorts of kind of sources. I mean, Gustav Hauptmann was, is, is really one of the pioneers in, in that. And I think, um, you know, we're, we're all indebted to him,
0: uh, in a way with that. Well, I'm in agreement with you there. Uh, we are running short on time, and we have two chapters that we really need to turn to. So let's go to chapter four, circling back to it, as it were, uh, where you write on the juxtaposition between order and freedom. Um, tell us a bit about that juxtaposition.
1: So I think to, to look at this one, we can go back to what I was talking about before, about um, human nature and this dualistic idea of, of human nature. And, and certainly this is really common um, within traditions of political thought uh, that we base our ideas on the ends of politics, the purposes of politics. Uh, we base those on how we understand humans to be, right? So how do we organize the political world, the social world? Well, it depends on, on what your view of human nature is. And so one of the most common views of, um, or the, certainly the common view that I talk, talked about uh, was this idea of the putus in um, the kind of morally fallible individual And if that's your idea of human nature, well, then one of the purposes of politics has been to control that, to channel that, to try to keep people from doing bad things. So what that's meant in, in a a broader history of, uh, sort of Theravada Buddhist political thinking has been the creation and maintenance of order. You know, this was monarchical order for a long, long time, uh, still in places like Thailand. but an order that was reflected not only in the material realm, um, in the uh design of capital cities, things like that, uh but also that were that reflected and supported um, a sense of order in uh in, in sort of more supernatural realms uh and, and um, in different planes of existence. So the idea is just that, you know, it's the king's responsibility to kind of keep people in mind. It's the political authority's responsibility um, to keep people acting in morally appropriate ways. And, and they do that in different ways. They do that through, um, you know, through the maintenance of their authority, through legal systems, legal prohibitions, and also through supporting um, the monkhood, right? Because it's the monks who are supposed to be guiding people through. Um, uh, Towards proper moral action. So so one of the ends of politics um, is is order, right, is is the maintenance of order and having the right people in charge um, and having uh, working to kind of keep everybody acting in appropriate ways.
0: What's the difference between that and, say, the, the Hobbesian Commonwealth, right? There's one point in the book in an earlier chapter where you talk about whether or not there's a social contract tradition in Buddhism. It's an ongoing debate. Um, so perhaps that ties into this discussion as well. But. Um, I guess what's of specific interest to me is that comparative element. How does this tradition differ from how um, political theorists in uh, the uh, working in the Western mode would understand it?
1: Right. Well, and, and, I, and I think one of one of the um, you know one of the important differences is in the the other aspect because um, in the, the first hand we can tie the opposite end, the sort of freedom, liberation, in with the other view of human nature, meaning um, this is the idea that humans are capable of of moral perfection. And so if they are, then we ought to be organizing politics in ways that allow for participation, that allow for free human action, that allow for that moral development. However, um, it's, it's actually also related to uh, the goal of order as well, because, because order, even in its strongest iterations, it's still only a proximate goal. So, you know, why, why does the king need to maintain order? Why do we need this, um, this sort of hierarchy? And the answer is because, um, we need to maintain the possibility of the goal of enlightenment and of moral perfection for all of the people. Um, and so, so ultimately in theory, at least the reason why you would need a hierarchy the reason why you would need to keep order um is not just it's not just to keep people from their kind of basis actions and things like that but also because even if you think it's it's very unlikely um people still need to be able to practice to achieve that moral enlightenment and 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 that would fundamentally again kind of in theory make a Buddhist polity, a kind of hierarchical, centralized Buddhist polity around the monarch, looks slightly different than maybe a kind of uh, you know the the Hobesian sovereign um, mm-hmm. that doesn't necessarily have that ultimate goal of moral perfection that you're retaining. So, but these aren't you know I'm presenting these as binaries, and and they're really more of a question of of a shift in emphasis, right? So mm-hmm. what I try to to talk through. In that chapter is how you have a kind of pre-colonial um, notion of order that seemed to be primary, but ultimately um, subsidiary to this this final goal of liberation. But liberation really understood in a kind of spiritual sense, right? Not necessarily in a, in a political sense. It's really then end of the 19th century into the 20th century where we start to get discourses of political freedom. <clears throat> And that political freedom is counterposed to the imposed um, order from the, the colonial state, but also tied in some ways to that um, ultimate spiritual liberation where uh, monks and others were arguing in the first couple decades of, of the 20th century that if people, if Burmese Buddhists didn't have political freedom, if they didn't have co- some kind of self-rule, they, they weren't going to be able to achieve enlightenment right that Nirvana was going to be closed off to them if they were uh, ruled by this foreign power and so you had a kind of political iteration of this freedom and 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 then from the 30s on you kind of started to get an economic iteration uh, of freedom as well and that got, grew particularly stronger after independence where uh, where people socialists and other kinds of leftists were arguing well we've got political freedom um, but in fact poverty, Capitalism, all of these things are still uh, keeping people sort of fettered to mundane needs and and the demands of everyday life. So liberation, in an ultimate sense, is still out of reach. Right, and that was a that, that was a kind of reiteration of of an economic argument about freedom. But, but it was occurring in a moment where you also started to get new versions of the order arguments as well, and, and this came from. People like UNU and the government who were saying, look, we've accomplished self-rule in a kind of political freedom sense. So now we don't need to go any further. Now you student protesters can go back to your university classrooms and things like that. And now what we need to do is we need to maintain the stable order uh, of self-rule. And so you had to have a kind of tension between these repeated calls for freedom, connecting them to liberation uh, against the reinstitution of order. And this is something that, of course, you know, order kind of won out over over five or six decades of military rule. But but the the kind of democratic period or the the beginnings of the National League for Democracy and other pro-democracy arguments were revitalizing that argument for political freedom in this case it wasn't about self-rule it was about um, throwing off the shackles of military rule and allowing people self-rule in a democratic sense and and even you know the nld and others were connecting that in some cases to liberation to the possibility for spiritual growth and development so you really have this tension that, you have this tension that's sort of gone back and forth throughout 150 years at least of, of burmese political thought
0: and what's the nub of all of that for democracy in Myanmar today?
1: <laughs> yeah, so that's the that's um, twenty five thousand dollar question, isn't it? It's um, I mean I think what we need to recognize, and <clears throat> you know, so in, in the chapter about democracy, um, actually the, the, this is one place where the the book changed significantly from the dissertation. The dissertation was looking at um, that sort of military views at uh, sort of pro democratic views and then monk's views. Um, and, you know, those, those categories were already kind of becoming anachronistic uh, when I wrote the dissertation and clearly weren't the best way to describe it by the time we came around to the book. And so now it's organized as uh, kind of thematically as these as disciplined views of democracy, rights-based views of democracy, and then as a, as a kind of idea of moral democracy. And what I'm trying to re- emphasize here is that, you know, although we would maybe be inclined to associate discipline with military, rights-based with the NLD and Duran San Kyi, and moral with the monks, in fact, we can see aspects of, of all of them in each of those Different groups, right? So certainly, if we read the underground journals of Hmong participating in the Saffron Revolution in 2007, they're often arguing for a kind of moral, uh, a democratic polity that's strengthened by moral practice. They're talking about um, rights in different ways, although they uh, they're they're trying to sort of get to human rights in in, in a you know through a different way rather than individual rights. But they're also talking about the importance of discipline, moral discipline. Um, about people 's conduct in everyday life, certainly Donson Kusucci is exactly the same way. Um, so so it's important for us to recognize that um, I think it, it's been the case that uh, that viewers and observers in the West saw in Don's Cheese rhetoric what they wanted to see. They saw uh, and what she probably wanted them to see, which was, you know, a lot of rights based language. And that's not to say that not in a lot of ways kind of liberal rights based thinker, but that there was a lot more going on. There's a lot more about the importance of moral development and moral action and having um you know basically uh being ready to to act when you need to but also knowing when the time is to be a disciplined quiet uh um citizen in some ways um so it's important for us to know the ways in which these things intertwine equally it's important for us to, to recognize that um you know, the, the democratic views in a place like Myanmar today are very complex, and there, there are people who want participation, there are people, you know, who want the kind of parliamentary-based democracy that exists here. There are people that want uh, a much broader, um, you know, small-D democracy to go down to the village level, to go into the workplace, to go into um, – Uh, You you know, to go into the monastery, uh, to go into the universities and the schools and all those kinds of things. But but it's not necessarily a sort of it's not necessarily always a liberal rights based understanding of democracy. And so getting a sense of how this dual idea of human nature gives us this fundamental tension in terms of democratic participation, that we want people to be able to participate and grow. But at the same time, we're very skeptical of what happens when imperfect, morally imperfect people do participate in these. That tells us that people are thinking about democracy in different ways. And it's very likely that when given the opportunity to do so, they're going to want to design democratic institutions, processes in different ways as as well um, that will take that will take account of of these moral interests uh, that could help to, you know, sort of structure greater moral. Practice um, uh, sort of better moral practice among citizens. All those kinds of things. Now, that's exciting in some uh, in what it potentially offers. It's also uh, uh, kind of terrifying in some ways. In in a religiously plural country like Myanmar, where you know it's not ever going to be a Buddhist polity, um, and and there's certainly uh, big fights about whether Buddhism should be the national religion. Um, but the, the the real kind of question is. Can you have Burmese Buddhists think about and engaging with politics through a Buddhist lens, while also recognizing the importance of maintaining this um, this religiously plural polity with Muslims and Christians and animists and Hindus and lots of other kinds of people? And and, and this, this is really where uh, you know I think for a lot of observers they saw the contrast between the pro allegedly pro democracy monks of Saffron Revolution in 2007 and then the nationalist monks like ur over the last few years, they see that as a kind of fundamental misunderstanding, where, whereas I think for a lot of us that have been paying close attention to the rhetoric of these monks, those those are things that are happening within moral discourse um, and and they're about a kind of fundamental struggle for, for what democratic politics is going to look like or buddhist-influenced politics is going to look like in a country like me. Uh,
0: Matt, you've mentioned a couple of times that the book is a study in a comparative political theory, so I'd like to close by asking you what about the work you think is especially valuable and useful for comparative scholars or for scholars working in other traditions of political theory?
1: you know, comparative, we're, we're probably <clears throat> hampered by the fact that comparative political theory is in some ways a misnomer. Um, it's, uh, you know, what we mean by it is often that we're studying non-Western traditions of thought. Now, that's equally cumbersome, right? What does non-Western effectively mean? Um, and And, you know, in some ways, Political theorists are, are doing comparisons all the time uh, between different thinkers, between different periods of time, all these kinds of things. And, and, and of course, there are strong internally comparative elements uh, in this. I mean, what I'm trying to do is describe, uh, again, to steal from Jackson, this interpretive plasticity, this wide range of interpretations of um, Buddhist political thinking within this one tradition in Myanmar. So there are comparisons within, in that way. Um, the dissertation itself had a lot more sort of comparisons within the Theravada tradition, looking at Sri Lanka, Laos, Thailand, um, Cambodia, uh, in addition to, to Myanmar. And that's something that, that got taken out of, of the book version, but that's actually informing the next project, um, so the next, the, the current book project is looking at um, comparative political thought within the Theravada world, uh, drawing on a lot of the same ideas uh, of the moral universe, trying to build on these these notions of human nature as well. But really, um, what I alluded to way back at the beginning, which is to say I'm looking less at kind of what the democratic implications of, or authoritarian implications might be, and, and more about what these different interpretations say about the expansion of participation in certain ways. So that can be explicit political participation in terms of people getting the right to vote. Uh, it can be the expansion of, of you know, sort of political advisors for kings in the pre-colonial era. It can be the expansion of monks' roles in the polity, the expansion of participation in the, all of these kind of semi-unique um, moral ways that we've been talking about. But looking at, the, at, at, at um, how those ideas have developed in sri lanka myanmar laos thailand and cambodia um, particularly looking at the different contexts right i mean we've we've got such a wide range of political outcomes uh with one non-colonized country with you know several that have been communist or leftists still are you know one that's a relatively successful democracy one that's just emerging that things that have had strongly different ideological influences um so that's the next project really trying to do a different type of comparison um uh, comparison, kind of outward, with some of these same um, materials, uh, and and of course there's uh, there's also an, another project that we just started with some colleagues at Oxford uh, that's trying to take up some of these political ideas in a slightly different way, but to look again more closely at this phenomenon that we're calling Buddhist nationalism, um, and and I always sort of put this in air quotes. Uh, this is the term that that many of us use as a shorthand to describe Urathu, Mabatha, all of this uh, anti-Muslim organizing. But but really, when it comes down to it, um, as we start to look closer, the both the kind of Buddhist identity parts and the national identity parts kind of sort of collapse and fall apart because there are so many kind of sub-identities and sub-interests in a place like Myanmar. So this is a big year and a half long project trying to kind of disaggregate this category of Buddhist nationalism and understand in an ethnically, racially uh, diverse place like Myanmar, uh, what this phenomenon is. So again, trying to do some comparison there between um, sort of different iterations of this uh, motivation to protect and grow Buddhism. Um, all, but but in, in fact, you know, we, we in the media that it gets painted with these broad brushstrokes of Buddhist nationalism. In fact, Uh, there's a lot more diversity in all of those uh, varied motivations.
0: I'm sure there'll be a lot of uh, listeners and uh, readers of the current book who'll be fascinated to follow those projects going forward. Uh, In the meantime, Matt Walton, I'd like to thank you so much for talking today about your new book, Buddhism, Politics and Political Thought in Myanmar.
1: Thanks so much, Nick. It was great to be here.
0: And thank you, dear listeners, for joining us. I hope you'll be with us next month for another conversation with an author of a new book. And if you have any suggestions for books or authors you'd like to hear featured, comments on the new two-part format or any other aspect of the channel, do let me know via the contact details on the New Books Network website.